RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Dr. Judith Curry is president and co-founder of CFAN, the Climate Forecast Applications Network. Following an influential career in academic research and administration, she founded CFAN to support the management of weather and climate risk. She is a professor emerita at the Georgia Institute of Technology, where she served as chair of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences for 13 years. She is a fellow of the American Meteorological Society, the American Association for the Advancement of Science and the American Geophysical Union. And she's frequently called upon to give congressional testimony and serve as an expert witness on matters related to weather and climate. She received a PhD in Geophysical Sciences from the University of Chicago. So there's our introduction to the welcome stage now. Um, welcoming to Reality Check Radio, Dr. Judith Curry. Thank you, Dr. Curry, for coming on and giving us a bit of time to talk about climate and weather today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Would it be fair to say that you've sort of gone, done a 180 degree kind of turn in in your career, in your understanding of, of the science that obviously you've been uh, well, associated with for so long? Well, it's it's a little bit tricky, you know, like, say in the early 2000, you know, 20 years ago, you know, I was just working on, you know, some narrow scientific problems that were relevant to climate. And I thought that the IPCC people were overconfident and it was politics. Then I inadvertently got thrown into the public debate on climate change around 2005, 2006. And I thought it was a responsible thing to support the IPCC consensus in my public statements on climate change. But I quickly disabused myself of that idea in 2009 uh, when the ClimateGate emails were released. These were hacked emails uh, of a bunch of IPCC authors, and it showed a bunch of academic skulldudgery and I said, well, if this is the sausage making that goes into this climate consensus, you know, I don't want any part of it. And I started to dig deeper and look at the problem from, you know, much broader dimensions. And I landed in a very different place. Um, yeah. And all this is described in my book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change here in most climate related stories we hear through the media that that institution, that organization keeps coming up. It's always associated with every kind of, especially when people are trying to bolster their credibility, the credibility of, of their argument. Well, okay, it cuts two ways. This is, you know, under the United Nations, this is the climate assessment process that's organized by the United Nations. Um, and there's several thousand scientists who work on this, you know, several thousand pages, <laughs> you know, of report about every six or seven years. And, you know, if you look deep into the bowels of the report, there's some good things. But the summary for policymakers, you know, is very cherry picked and, you know, and it's fun. And then the UN climate officials spin the whole thing even more. And then the media takes over. And then what the average person see is carefully laundered alarming spin. So, um, you know, it, it's, 
And there are a lot of scientists who are alarmist political activists who think the IPCC findings are too tame. Okay. Right. So, okay. And then there are other people who think they're just wrong and they're overconfident. So there's many, many different perspectives about this whole issue. Is there, I mean, I even have good friends who say, don't you realize, Paul, there's a climate crisis? And when I um, asked them, because, you know, my journalism kicks in, where, where did you hear that? They can't kind of tell me where they heard that from, even though you hear it a lot. Is there a crisis? I mean, can we kind of draw a line in the sand and understand, is there a crisis? Is there a danger? Is there something wrong? Or because it seems to me looking out the window, I could be missing something. It's kind of like always business as usual, climate wise. Well, that's pretty much the case. I mean, there's extreme weather that has always happened, is happening now, and it will always happen in the future. I mean, this has little to nothing or nothing to do with human-caused warming. Basically, the problem is that we've, we've mischaracterized climate risk. I mean, the slow creep of warming um, you know, influences sea level drop, rise and the melting of glaciers, which are slow processes. But the extreme weather events, which all the alarm is tied to, really has next to nothing to do with human-caused fossil-fueled warming. So we're, we're just in a tizzy about nothing. And, you know, the latest from the UN is now it's not global warming anymore, it's global boiling. I mean, there's all this hyperbole and nonsense that comes from UN leaders and uh, national political leaders. And, you know, what, what is the average person to think um, but if you use your common sense and look out the window, I mean, and especially if you're as old as I am, you're going to remember, um, you know, lost worse weather in the past. And if you really look at the data, you'll see that there was worse. Any place you look, you'll always find worse weather in the past. If you can go back to the early 20th century or even the late, even the 19th century. So bad weather is nothing new. We just need to get on with it and figure out how to make ourselves less vulnerable to it. We're experiencing a discussion here in this country. Um, they're calling it managed retreat. And that is to establish a regime to retreat people from at-risk areas um, a result of climate change, i.e. coastal areas that could be subject to sea level rise, etc. And some of the powers that are being proposed, well, there's a discussion at this stage, but you know, there's there's quite a bit of power and motivation behind those discussions, so they could go further, and that is a quite draconian sort of um, regimes to to take people off land and to yeah retreat people away from those areas. Though well, no one can say or no one can point to any measurable sea level rise. It's so again, what's all this about? Inches. You know, the sea level rise is measured in inches. Um, you know, over a century, maybe the global sea level rise has been maybe seven or eight inches over the last century. And it, that's fairly discernible against the background of tides and ocean circulation patterns. And some places are sinking because of land use, groundwater withdrawal. Um, you know, so the, the, the fossil fuel part of sea level rise is really quite small and not really noticeable. Hmm. And th this whole issue of ma managed retreat, you know, in anticipation of catastrophic sea level rise is 
really a bad decision. I mean, coastal areas are very productive. They're desirable. People like to live there. Tourists like to visit there. I mean, you know, we just have to figure out how to um, manage that situation. You can do it with coastal defenses, both natural and man-made. You can do it by building either very strong structures or very inexpensive structures that you don't expect to last more than 20 years and you rebuild them if you get a big storm surge. You know, there's all sorts of ways to manage this in sensible ways, but there's sort of like adaptive decision-making where you, you know, proceed slowly as more evidence comes in. You don't just look at some crazy catastrophic implausible prediction and say, we're gonna set our policy to this and just retreat. I mean, that, that's really a very bad use of your nation's resources. Well, it's it's, um, it's part of the alarmism, isn't it? And also, I think people get carried away with that. They kind of enjoy the journey. So how, how do we get to such a level of alarmism? Because normally, you know, you're, you're not supposed to yell fire in the, cine, in the cinema, in the picture theatre. I mean, that that is alarmism. We're kind of almost at that level with 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 climate, describing climate. Okay, well, you know, you have to blame it on the UN, and the story goes back to the late 1980s and early 1990s. I mean, they came up with this idea, the UN Environmental Program, um, you know, was very anti-capitalism, anti-fossil fuels, even anti-democracy, and they were looking for an issue to try to promote um, non-governmental world control and they saw climate change as the ideal issue and and even in the 19 in 1992 we had a UN treaty the UN framework convention on climate change to prevent dangerous anthropogenic climate change and 196 um, nations signed on to this including the US which is pretty skeptical about such things generally and this was before there was any evidence that there was any warming outside the range of natural variability. We already had an international treaty to prevent fossil-fueled warming. Um, and, and so the the simplistic idea was we need global action, we need global buy-in, and the only way uh, for that to happen is to promote, you know, to be alarmist and scare people. Okay, so that was a strategy, and it's... Um, well, yeah, it's worked. Okay, and and now that it, 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 there's sort of a cultural thing that's perpetuating it. Um, it's become aligned with certain political parties. Um, there's um, sort of secular religions around all this. You've got all these organizations like Extinction Rebellion. You've got kids. I mean, a whole generation of kids who are depressed and think they have no future because global warming is just going to destroy everything. And people not uh, having children. I know, I know. It's, it's just crazy. So so the alarm has worked, but but what has that accomplished? We're, 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 we aren't very far along to getting rid of fossil fuels because wind and solar, their preferred solution just simply isn't going to cut it. And people are not going to destroy their economy or destroy their agriculture for some hypothetical warming um, that never that comes in the 22nd century, you know, yeah. people aren't willing to do that. So th there's increasingly there's backlash against all this sort of UN top down alarmism. 
about global warming. Okay, yeah, it's warming. You know, it's not that terrible. We, we just need to figure out how to get on with it. Sure, let's do some research and development into new energy. Well, there's a natural progression of technology anyway in the human yeah. kind of makeup. Absolutely. So we never stop anyway, do we? We're always looking for absolutely. the absolutely way to do things. If we didn't have these urgent targets, you know, over the normal course of events of the 21st century, we would be transitioning probably to more abundant, cheaper, cleaner sources of energy. Who doesn't want that? And, you know, there's better solutions to be found, I'm sure. And by the end of the 21st century, you know, I don't think we're going to be um, burning fossil fuels for 80% of the world's energy as we are now. <laughs> It'll probably be a much smaller fraction. But, and we'll all be more prosperous by, by 2100. But we can screw this up. If we destroy our electricity and energy infrastructure, we can make ourselves, uh, we can destroy our economy. I mean, Germany is going down that path. Well, they let um, um, their good ally, your country, it seems, <laughs> right, exactly. destroy their industrial power, which is mind-boggling. I know. It's crazy. It's just crazy. And, and not only that, but it makes us, you know, electricity for air conditioning and desalination and all this kind of stuff that we can use to help protect ourselves from weather and climate extremes. But if we don't have electricity... You know, we're going to be a lot more vulnerable, um, our safety, our security, and our economy to the vagaries of whatever weather and climate extremes nature might throw our way. When you were, you sort of went through that list before, you know, the um, uh, you were talking about uh, the sort of anti-capitalism and, and and kind of you know the the mindsets of of some of the people back what twenty thirty years ago. But why why is fossil fuel singled out? Because, I mean, that is a naturally occurring thing that is available. Is that because it's associated with people who promote or culture that promotes capitalism? Because it, it seems to there seems to be a fixation on demonizing that particular naturally occurring resource. Is it too connected with other things? Okay, well, it, okay. It's big business. Okay, environmentalism, you know, the 1970s style environmentalism didn't like fossil fuels because of the pollution. Okay, air pollution, real pollution, air pollution and water. And that's pollution. fair enough, right? That's fair that's enough. Fair enough. Okay, so so that was an impetus not to like um, fossil fuels. But that there's also a significant sort of like degrowther, um, anti capitalism anti-democracy. It's just a worldview that a significant number of people have, okay? And they, they're just trying to, <laughs> you know, if we destroy economies, who cares? Um, and these, there's a lot of those types in universities, um, number of politicians who have that view. And so I, I regard it as a dangerous view, <laughs> um, but it, it's, because you could you know, make the yeah. same argument for solar panels or batteries that, that run cars if you want to oh, talk yeah. about, you know, the oh, actual physical impact. Oh, oh but, but there's not a lot of reason and rationality here. Um, you know, the sun and the wind, it's free energy, you know, and the nitty gritty of all the materials and how to do the engineering to integrate this into the grid and how expensive it is and on and on it goes. No, they're just looking at this 
utopian free natural energy. I mean, a lot of it's just willful ignorance um, of these people. And there's a certain tribal component to it. You know, people, it's part of their political and personal identity to belong to these groups. Right. Um, I got you. Yeah. What about uh, now the role of people like yourself, scientists? And I think the cons- the scientific consensus, as it is known, I mean, obviously, we know the meaning of that word, but what does that actually mean in in reality, a scientific consensus? It sounds like it's all in for everyone, but it's clearly not. Okay. There's a big difference between a scientific consensus and a consensus of scientists. Okay. The Earth orbiting the sun. Nobody disagrees with that one. Okay. You could say there's a scientific consensus on that point. But it's such a well-known fact, you don't need to even talk about scientific consensus. On the other hand, with climate change, what you have is a consensus of scientists. It was manufactured. It's a manufactured consensus that was done at the request of policymakers, international policymakers, an assignment to the IPCC. You know, we would like you to come up with consensual conclusions. And so they carefully select authors for the IPCC report who they can generally expect how they're going to go. And they sit around a table and they negotiate a climate, uh, uh, you know, a consensual agreement on the various relevant topics. Okay, so, I mean, it's, it's a way of dismissing uncertainty. It's a way of dismissing complexity. And it's a way of coming up with a politically agreeable solution for the policymakers, and the policymakers in turn reward the scientists with plenty of funding, and the media rewards them with lots of fame, and the professional societies reward them with awards, including big financial awards. And there's just this whole ecosystem, <laughs> you know, between the scientists, the policymakers um, that are perpetuating this. Um, you know, the people, and it, it's not, if you try, if you're a scientist and you try to go against this, um, it's not going to be a very happy situation for you if you work for a government lab or in a university which is why I resigned my university, tenured university position, and I'm now in the private sector where I can speak, you know, freely without any adverse career consequences. Do you communicate with, well, you must do, you must have former colleagues and friends and people you respect that are still in that system that you communicate uh, with. What, what What are they saying? In private, um, behind. Well, it would have to be in private, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, a lot of them just like ignore the whole issue. You know, they don't speak up publicly. They ignore the whole issue and they work on their narrow scientific problems and just stay out of it. So, I mean, that's how a lot of people cope. You know, just just stay out of the public debate and work on your narrow problem and just be very careful what title you use on your papers so it doesn't look too controversial. If there's anything controversial, just make sure it's buried in your paper where people aren't going to easily spot it. Right. You know, so so that's, yeah. people, that's how people adapt, you know, and, and, but, 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 but people, it can't, it can't be professionally rewarding. 
though. It's a huge compromise. Is it all about the money in the end? Is it? No, no. It's, it's about, you know, a lot of scientists just really love to do science. And they don't particularly want to get caught up in a political debate. So, so they'll they, compromise, though, the kind of eth- the ethics. No, not really. They just stay out of the public oh, debate. I gotcha. Okay. Whatever their personal opinion on it, they just keep their mouth shut and they do their work. And they train their students and they um, are rewarded by making new advancements in the science. And, um, you know, that's their reward and that's why they do it. But there's a, a, you know, a large number who are activists. You know, they want to be out there, you know, they're and changing the world and influencing the debate. And they see this as the pathway to academic fame and fortune in terms of getting a lot of media attention and awards and, you know, big salaries from your university. You know, there's all these reward systems in place to support the activist scientists. <laughs> yeah. So the activist scientists are doing better career-wise than that other group who sort of keeps their head down and just keeps out of the public debate and works on their narrow scientific problems. Scientists so, rock stars, potentially. There, there oh, does oh, seem yeah. to be a, a new class of scientists now, the sort of rock star oh, yeah. scientists. Oh, oh, yeah. They have, you know, some of them have publicity agents, you know, huge followings on social media, um, and, and the professional societies like those kind of people and they give them awards sometimes with big cash prizes associated with it so so there's this whole class of people <laughs> like neil degrasse tyson he'd be a good example of that i mean he's oh, a yeah. rock star scientist isn't he and yeah, yeah he, he's yeah. one example yes and he would have been very well rewarded i would imagine oh for sure <laughs> yeah and you were once kind of in that camp because you were trundled out and and talk and interviewed and made appearances you were in that game there for a while right there was a two-year period when i was really out there in front you know with, with the hurricanes and global warming issue which was huge after hurricane katrina devastated new orleans and the united states and that was huge and it was just non-stop you know tv interviews journalism interviews being flown around to this or that um media how did that feel how did that feel while that was happening? Uh, it, it was uh, it was uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, it's not my personality style. It was uncomfortable. I felt like I owed it to, you know, get out there and be honest. And at some point, I started feeling compromised because it was so political, and people were using me for their own political agendas. And you know, I backed off from all of the media stuff, like say two thousand seven. I just said, no, um, you know, I, this is not who I am. I don't like this. And then in 2009, I sort of went back into the public debate following the climate gate emails. You know, I, I mentioned those before, you know, because it revealed so much um, unethical behavior by these scientists. You know, I thought that we had to do better as scientists and somebody needed to speak out. Unfortunately, I was pretty much the only one speaking out <laughs> about this, and I became ostracized by the community for speaking out. Do you recognize with your knowledge of this and being in it? Do you recognize any other patterns in science 
that that are not weather or climate, but seem to be operating in the same way at the moment. Can you identify any? Oh well, well the whole COVID nineteen issue. Um, there are many parallels between climate change and and the COVID in terms of the policy, the public debate, and COVID, and, and I draw those parallels extensively in my book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk. Um, and COVID was interesting because this whole thing played out on the timescale of a few years. <laughs> you know, you saw people canceled and on and on it went and premature declarations of consensus and, you know, the whole the whole thing. But apparently you see it everywhere, you know, in biology departments, anything related to gender or intelligence is a hot potato uh, anything in the nutrition and health field. And I thought it was just science, but people said, no, no, you see it in the law schools, you see it in social psychology departments, you see it everywhere where there's any societal relevance. You get these um, dominant paradigms or viewpoints that are enforced. And if you and if you don't toe the line, you're not going to succeed professionally. So it's it's rampant in many fields. Um, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, because then you've you got to ask, and and maybe you've got a view on this, you got to ask, well, is it the same people? Well, it's probably a similar mindset, but you know, where's this, um, where's this force of it coming from? It's obviously top down, must be. Um, uh, yeah, and, and and it's it's power, you know, there's a natural, you know, people want you know some people want power and they see this as a path to power influence uh financial success um you know there's all sorts of complex motives here but you know it's an, oh okay university administrators see these issues certain you know positions on these issues as helping the university attract money <laughs> you know so there's a a crass element there yeah um you know, there's certain there's politics in play. I mean, big time politics with both COVID and climate change, you know, top down, you know, consensus enforcing kind of things. Um, so it's a very bad state of affairs. Now on social media, I mean, God bless Elon Musk and Twitter, um, you know, for opening things up so you can get more more diverse perspectives out there in the public arena. Um, but people getting canceled for saying really innocuous things um, from social media, um, you know, being deplatformed, and then people, you know, university professors losing their jobs over fairly trivial transgressions. <laughs> yeah, it's it's okay. very brutal. It's 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 like excessive blunt force trauma being um, oh, oh, sort of handed out, meted out. Yeah, you know, and, and this is why you know. Um, the private sector and non-governmental organizations um, are really better places to be, in my opinion, right now. You know, if you want to, you know, think more broadly and not, you know, play these political consensual games. Um, it, it's very, it's impossible to do in government labs and at most universities. A very sad state of affairs. It's interesting though because you you do your own thing now. You've sort of trans transitioned out of that, which shows, I guess, as an example to others who 
just want to play it, keep it quiet, and and, and keep things as as stable as they can for themselves. Carry on like you described before. But it but what you've done shows that there is life after sort of quitting that part of it. You've gone on, oh. and, and how are you doing? Are you you know, obviously. Um, oh, it's great. You know, we're doing so many interesting things and, and I just love it. I, you know, I'm not making as much money as when I was a university faculty member because any it's a small business, a new business. Any profits get plowed back into the company for bigger computers and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. New people. So at this point, it's not exceptionally financially lucrative. But the point is. Um, developing new ideas, new strategies. We have a great team. We're, we're helping a lot of clients better manage their weather and climate re- you know, risk. And it's extremely rewarding, extremely interesting. So I couldn't be happier. With everything you know, um, do you see this, this situation improving or you know, a resolution to the worst of it? Um, people waking up, uh, is there going to be a change of culture in the scientific community? I mean, politics probably stays the same. How do you see sort of the near medium future of all of this? Well, at some point, the natural climate regimes will shift a little bit cooler and we won't see so much bad weather. And that should help tamp it down a little bit. Um, the climate models and, you know, the even the IP, the UN has backed off quite a bit. The climate crisis isn't what it was even a few years ago. They've dropped the most extreme emission scenarios. Everybody agrees those are no longer plausible. And they realize that climate models are running too hot. So the the numbers coming out of the UN are about half what they were, you know, even three years ago. But but they still amp up the alarm, global boiling code red or whatever. Well, that was the head of the UN, Guterres. He actually said that, and it was very recent that he said that. So I know, I know. In spite of, I mean, they're still talking about like, you know, maybe at most one and a half degrees centigrade warming for the rest of the 21st century. It's a pretty small amount of warming. And I think even that number is too high. But, you know, they're trying to raise the alarm about this, and it's crazy. And the other thing is, is people, I think, Country, states, whatever, are starting to realize that wind and solar are not a good deal. Yeah. That you know, um, you know, nuclear, geothermal, you know, these are better solutions. But wind, uh, particularly wind, this is not a good solution for ecosystems, resources, land use, the electric grid. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why wind isn't a very good solution, other than for certain niche regions and applications. So I think people will, I mean, at some point, you know, the iron law of, you know, people not wanting to jeopardize themselves unnecessarily and wanting to prosper, you know, will take over once they see that this just really isn't going to work. It's been very interesting chatting with you, Dr. Curry, Judith Curry. Thank you for coming on our radio station. And just remind people of your book, which um, because it's good timing. The the title is Climate, Uncertainty and Risk. Check it out. Well, thanks for coming on Reality Check Radio. Great. Thank you. I had fun talking to you. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.